the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed he is, and a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome on board. It is the 12th day of September. It's Tuesday. Trust you're having a good week so far, so on. Certainly a better week here for uh, us uh, out here in the California end of things and continuing to send our good thoughts and prayers to our uh, friends back in Florida watching the ongoing recovery. I guess at a level we can take some comfort that it did not turn out to be as disastrous as initially predicted, but nevertheless, uh, whenever there's loss of life or people lose their homes and are displaced or everything that they own suddenly disappears, your heart has to go out to them. So continue to pray for um, the victims of both uh, Hurricane Harvey down south in Texas, as well as the victims of Hurricane Irma. Um, We'll talk a bit more about that later on in tonight's program. We're also going to talk about a number of events that have been occurring, both in the political landscape and event-related landscapes, such as um, hurricanes and earthquakes and things of that sort. And um, in a fascinating conversation with best-selling author Jonathan Kahn, We'll talk about the paradigm that seems to be that sense of history repeating itself and what lessons can we learn. We'll talk about all that coming up a little bit later on. Also, some comments on Ben Shapiro's upcoming visits to the UC Berkeley campus, once known as a bastion of free speech, not no more. How come? We'll talk about that later on in tonight's program. But first, I have a question for you. If I told you that I've got my hands on your name, your address, your date of birth, your social security number, and your driver's license number, would that make you nervous? Oh, I know we're best buds. We commute together and have done so for years. And yet, would you really want to trust a character like me with all that personal information? What if I told you that some anonymous individual, perhaps an organization like the Russian Mafia, has access to that information, and maybe even yours. The better part of 143 million Americans had their personal data, including name, address, date of birth, social security number, and driver's license number, breached during a recent hack of one of the major credit reporting organizations in this country. Though they don't seem to be as concerned about it as one would think. I mean, I would suggest to you that that kind of information held by any organization in one single repository ought to protect it better than perhaps the Pentagon protects military secrets. And yet, as we'll learn from Attorney Scott Cole, quite the contrary has become true. Scott Cole is the founder of Scott Cole and Associates. They are attorneys based right here in the Bay Area that work to uh, protect consumer and worker rights. And, um, Counselor, thank you so much for being with us today. First, take us back. We understand that apparently um, this breach of the database 
of Equifax not only potentially impacts more than 143 million Americans, but uh, they apparently weren't in much of a rush to let us know this. Why? Well, that's an excellent question. We want to know the same thing. And uh, unfortunately, none of us had known about this outside of Equifax uh, until five days ago. Uh, They knew about the breach, according to their own admissions, in late July of this year, and yet, of course, didn't tell us, any of us, until the 7th of September. And this is a breach that went on for a couple of months. So I I share your concern about this and the question. Our litigation, uh, among other things, is uh, going to find that out. And, you know, down through the years, this is certainly not the first breach of, of this sort, though perhaps of this magnitude, to be sure. We know stories about breaches taking place in the database of Home Depot, Target, uh, eBay, J.P. Morgan Chase, Sony Pictures, though largely probably the efforts of North Korea in that case. Then you start to get to organizations like Citibank or um, Anthem Healthcare. You get a little bit more nervous because of the nature of the personal information that they have stored in their databases. But when you talk about Equifax, this is one of three major credit reporting agencies, the other two being Asperian and TransUnion. And, uh, Scott, they have access to everything. In fact, I might suggest they probably know more about me than I do. And yet, (laughs) apparently, a very lackadaisical approach not only to making this information available to the public that's been impacted by this. As you mentioned, the breach happened sometime between mid-May and July. They took more than a month to let consumers know about it. And then, if, if that isn't insulting enough... There was a condition, and we're going to share the website address that folks need to go to to find out whether or not they were potentially impacted by this. But as people like me went to that website, and by the way, I'm on the list, I discovered, much to my horror, that they would let me know if my information was potentially compromised. They would be willing to offer me protection service for the next year, provided that I waive my rights to defend my own personal information. I'm shocked that that's even permissible under law. I don't think that would be enforceable, which is probably one of the reasons that that came back off the site uh, within about 48 hours. But you're right. Uh, They were asking people to uh, waive their rights uh, to file a case in civil court, uh, instead to uh, subject themselves to arbitration, uh, and to waive the right to participate in a class action. When I saw that, I was I was equally offended. All, all we do is class actions, but I think they're important. Uh, and to see that on a website after a breach of this of this magnitude was was really uh, amazing. I, I like your analogy about Fort Knox, by the way. I mean, this, in the state of the world, these credit agencies really are the equivalent of that, and they're they're supposed to be held to a higher standard to protect information like this. To, to allow their uh, infrastructure to get breached in this way is just is just remarkable. And then that's tell us. For, for almost uh, uh, for six weeks is, is really remarkable. Here's what bothers me about this, um, and I hope this is true of most people listening, but I, I will tell you for myself, um, I, I am very cautious. I never throw anything in the trash can that has any personal information on it unless it goes through the shredder. I am careful to make sure I have control over my credit cards at all times. I don't email information containing private data like date of birth and Social Security numbers to anybody. Uh, I am very cautious in making sure that I protect as much of my own identity and privacy as I possibly can because I know from the experience of 
friends who have had their uh, data compromised and therefore had their identity stolen, that it can be a multi-year, painful, ongoing, horrific experience that costs time and, uh, well, the value of the time in, in, in dollars is it's almost impossible to assign a value to it. And so I've tried to be very judicious, very cautious in protecting my data. And then to find out the third party, the size of Equifax, could not only apparently be easily breached, but then sit on the fact for better part of 30 days. Who knows what untoward things have happened to my data and that of 143 million other Americans over the course of the last month. I find so egregious and so shocking. Two questions come to mind. Number one, why aren't there laws in place that would say if you are as big or contain as much sensitive data as a credit reporting agency and you allow yourself to get breached, there are going to be major punishments coming your way from the government. Moreover, does it take a massive class action lawsuit to teach organizations like this that they need to do a better job in protecting the credit and personal data of millions of Americans? Yeah, uh, I agree with you that uh, there should be stronger legislation. There are, there are movements, in fact, to, uh, uh, to put that into place. The, the Fair Credit Reporting Act is, is a great piece of legislation, but I don't think it goes far enough. Uh, there are individuals, for example, uh, you know, Senator uh, Schatz, for example, in Hawaii, to reintroduce legislation that, that failed a couple of years ago. Uh, he, in fact, just yesterday wrote a letter to Richard Smith, the CEO of Equifax, asking for information, the kind of information that we'll be getting in our litigation. But people, you know, like that senator and, and, and Elizabeth Warren and so forth that are co-sponsoring that bill, you know, they understand what I think you and I are saying here, and that is there really need to be stronger protections. Uh, first of all, uh, in the infrastructure of these companies, but also in their response to, to uh, situations like this. You know, criminals uh, of this skill set are patient, and I, I don't mean to be alarmist here, but I, the dust has far from settled on this case. It's only been five days, but the ramifications of this could be months or years in the coming. Well, that's just it. I mean, even as they offer to provide uh, consumer protection uh, services for the next year, with that information for so many individuals, I mean, let's face it, I don't plan on changing my name or date of birth or my Social Security number because of this. And so what would prevent these criminals from simply laying back, waiting a while, let the dust kind of settle, sell the information a year down the road. It's got to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars on the black market. So even if Equifax offers me a free year of consumer protection, uh, I don't know that that's going to make me feel very good on day 366. Moreover, isn't there a bit of a silver lining in this for them? And that is to say that, well, after the free service ends, we're just going to turn around and sell you some product or service, which ultimately then benefits Equifax and not me? That's one of the big concerns that people, both on social media and have contacted our office, have asked, to ask both those questions. One, you're right. This information is good as gold. And you know, waiting a year for, for the value, the magnitude of this information, you know, is, is a short amount of time for, for criminals to be sitting on it. The, uh, the trusted ID uh, premier service that Equifax is on, I agree with you. One year is hardly enough to protect anyone. And uh, one has to wonder, at the end of that year, on the 366th day, are we going to get, uh, you know, uh, correspondence from Equifax saying, hey, do you want to continue with pressure tactics and, and fear-mongering to keep this thing going? 
there are a lot of services out there. There's only one of them. I do encourage folks to take this seriously, and most folks don't do the kind of shredding that you and I might do of our documents. But um, uh, And I'm not saying they, they need to, but I'm saying that this is a, a breach that is of an historic nature. People need to take notice. I know that there have been upwards of some 30 class action suits that have already been filed, and I would imagine eventually perhaps they're all going to be uh, culled together into one massive lawsuit. But if somebody listening right now says, you know, I I agree, I don't think that my information has been protected anywhere near the level that it should be, and while I'm thrilled that they're going to offer me a year of consumer protection for free, uh, day number 366 is the one that's got me worried too. If they want to join in a class action suit, Suit, uh, what would you recommend that they do? Well, if they want to join a class action suit, I, I, I would recommend they not go alone. <laughs> they don't have to contact my office, but uh, we are getting a lot of calls about this. Uh, the case that we filed, you're right, there have been a number of lawsuits around the country that have been filed. California has got very protective laws when it comes to this that go beyond the federal standards. So we're, we're looking at that regard, although I might say they could even go farther. Uh, but individuals that, that want to get information, they don't you know, it's a personal decision whether you want to participate in the class action case or not. But at least to get the information, I think, is important and to see, you know, what they can do to help protect themselves. Um, you know, they can contact offices like mine. Uh, I had somebody call me earlier and ask if they uh, would be uh, uh, advised to go and file a small claims court and I said, case. And I said, you know, Equifax does not want to allow a precedent to be set here in any small claims court around the country. So... You might want to think that one through a bit before you move forward. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think the litigation is going to be consolidated at some point. And, again, if for no other reason than giving information to people, you know, that's what we're here to do. And if folks want to get more information, you can uh, go online to scalaw.com. That's scalaw.com. Think Scott. Cole Associates, scalaw.com. And uh, no doubt that they're going to be lining up. And, you know, I... There's much talk about, well, what happens when we see a number of lawsuits like this. Listen, at the end of the day, yes, there are abuses of our judicial system. We know we know that. But we also know that there are some companies that are so big and so callous that they don't really care. If they have to write a few checks for a few million dollars, I mean, look at the case of Ford and the Ford Pinto. They concluded that it would be cheaper for them to just pay out lawsuits than to redesign the Ford Pinto to prevent people from getting killed in uh, rear-end collisions where the gas tank would explode. Well, that, that's just, that's malpractice. Uh, what do we call that? Automotive malpractice? That's malpractice of the highest order. And the same thing here. If you know anyone who has ever had their personal information compromised and their identity stolen, you know that it can take years to untangle that mess. Meanwhile, accounts have problems. Credit gets frozen. You want to go out and buy a car. You get denied. You start getting delinquent bills for you know, the boat that you bought that you know nothing about, it can be a living nightmare. And unfortunately, here's an organization that that cradles in its hands the most intimate personal information about you and your financial life. As I suggested a moment ago, they probably know more about you and me than we know about each other or about ourselves. And yet they've they've failed to protect that data. And if this is not locked down as tight as the Pentagon, then I think somebody needs to get to the reason why. And if the laws are not on the books to protect consumers, they need to be put there. And if companies are going to take a lazadaisical approach to this, then maybe a little financial punishment will get their attention.
I want to thank Attorney Scott Cole for being with us and uh, sharing some insights. Now, here's what you need to do. Again, let me reiterate, there are 143 million Americans whose personal data was compromised in this breach of Equifax Credit Reporting Agency. If you're one of them, that means that some criminal now has your name, your address, your date of birth, your social security number, and your driver's license number. Other than perhaps information about where you work and what you earn, can you think of anything else you would really need to open up a credit card, go out and get a loan, or maybe buy a car? I can't. I mean, that's, that's about it. That's about all you need. And 143 million of us now have our personal data in the hands of who knows who, where, or what they intend to do with it. I'm going to guarantee you this. They didn't steal the information because they want to send all of us birthday cards. So you need to go online and see if you are one of the people that was breached. Equifax is offering a free year of consumer protection, and you're going to need it. You can go on to EquifaxSecurity2017.com. That's EquifaxSecurity20172017.com. And Jarrell, remind me, what did it say down at the bottom there to see if you were compromised? Uh, there was a there was an icon that you went to that said, "See how good his memory is." No, no. At the very end, you had to click on a box that tells you to see if you're compromised. What what was the name of that box? You don't remember either. <laughs> that makes me feel good because you're half my age. So good, I'm not the only one. <laughs> You'll figure it out when you get there. Go there today. I cannot tell you the number of people that I know that were compromised. Uh, Since I read about this story uh, earlier in the week and shared it with colleagues, I will tell you that better than half of the staff at the radio station here have had their data compromised. In some cases, um, staff members went online, checked, and said, oh, good, I'm not on the list, and they wiped their brow in relief and then thought, hmm, I wonder about my husband's data or my wife's, and put that information in, and bingo, bango, there it was. Somebody in the family had their data compromised. So figure roughly half of the working population has information in the hands of who knows who that could compromise your financial health. Go online when you get home tonight, EquifaxSecurity2017.com. You'll put in your last name and the last six numbers of your social, and then it will tell you whether or not your data was compromised. If it was, then follow the prompts in order to sign up for the consumer protection products. And to do it today, because this information has been floating around out there for more than a month now without us knowing about it. And granted, the criminals could be very patient, as uh, Attorney Cole suggested, and wait all the way up until day 366 before they start using the data. But i got to tell you, they have access to hundreds of millions of dollars of value on the black market here. And uh, unfortunately, Equifax didn't do its job. Now we have to do our job to protect ourselves and our identity. Equifax Security 27. Com. That's EquifaxSecurity2017.com. All right, 665-4321. Six, six, five, <laughs> 525. Let's get a look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. <laughs> Did you get all that? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, repeat that again quite slowly, would you please? <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, yes, Phil, I certainly am. Hey, we've had a couple of folks call the show saying, Craig, can you please repeat the website address in order to go and check to see if I'm one of the 143 million who had their personal data breached and happy to do so. It's EquifaxSecurity2017.com, EquifaxSecurity2017.com. And I, I suspect if you Google it, you'll find it that way, too. Just make sure you're on the legitimate website. I imagine somebody go set up an imposter site to steal even more data. All right, EquifaxSecurity2017.com. I wanted to comment. We moved this down from the top of the show because uh, I thought the the information about the Equifax breach would probably be a little bit more um, of direct importance to your life than uh, my soapbox comments on the issue of free speech. But, you know... uh, one of our uh, guests, occasional guests on this program, Ben Shapiro, is uh, due to be in town shortly. And um, there's an interesting thing that is developing at what had been considered the bastion of free speech in the United States, that, of course, being UC Berkeley. And the issue that seems to be developing here is that free speech in America is clearly under threat. Now, ironically, here in a country where the Constitution and the courts carefully protect free speech, many people don't even feel free to speak freely. A lot of it has to do with what appears to be the smothering blanket of political correctness on our university campuses. Let me give you an example. There is a memo, and you can find this on the UC Berkeley Leadership uh, on the website, rather, posted by the UC Berkeley leadership um, on the official website of the University of California at Berkeley. And it says, and I quote here, we are deeply concerned about the impact some speakers may have on individuals' sense of safety and belonging. The memo goes on to say, quote, no one should be made to feel threatened or harassed simply because of who they are or for what they believe, close quote. Ben Shapiro is the latest in a series of guests, including Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter, who apparently are being threatened because they want to come and speak their mind on the university campus. Now, I don't agree with a lot of what Milo says or stands for. Ann Coulter, longtime listeners to this program, know has been a frequent guest on this show, though not so much of recent because she's kind of gone a little bit off the rails recently kind of kind of turned up the nastiness one too many notches uh, for this kind of program so she hasn't been a recent guest on the program but she's appeared here several times and I would defend to the end the right of both Ann Coulter and Milo Yiannopoulos to voice their opinions though I may not agree in total with everything that they think or believe But I have to wonder to myself whether or not we are raising a generation of mealy-mouthed, scared chickens who can't possibly tolerate somebody saying something about them or to them or just in their presence that might hurt their little feelings. Really and truly, if a conservative like Ben Shapiro 
wishes to take life in his own hands and come to the University of California at Berkeley and speak his mind on conservative issues, Republican issues, family issues, and, I don't know, dare say something like he thinks abortion is wrong, we need to suddenly kowtow to somebody who might potentially take offense to that. Really? Let me read you again what has been posted in a memo by the UC Berkeley leadership on the official university website in relationship to the possibility that Ben might say something that would hurt their tender, sensitive feelings. We are deeply concerned about the impact some speakers may have on individual sense of safety and belonging. So, I don't know, if you're pro-abortion and somebody says, you know, children are created in God's image, and that could be considered to be taking of another life, and therefore you probably ought not to do it, somebody might feel suddenly that they don't belong anymore. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a demonstration not of UC Berkeley's defense of sensitive feelings, but rather a sign of the university's abject intolerance. If you're new to the Bay Area or younger than 40, let me let you know that UC Berkeley is known as the birthplace of the free speech movement, though it seems to be struggling and failing horribly in recent months to strike a balance between public safety and the right of campus organizations to host speakers, controversial or not. We've seen this past spring and into the summer protests turning violent against authors such as Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter. And while I don't tell everybody that you want to embrace everything that they speak, think, write about, or believe, there is an equivalency, I think, to be cautious here that, you know, no, you don't have a right to yell fire in a crowded theater. That's not free speech. That's just stupidity. But if somebody wishes to get up, and I'm not talking about hate speech. I'm talking about voicing objective moral opinions that may or may not differ from that of the audience or participants is suddenly not allowable because somebody might have their feelings bruised or might have their sense of safety and belonging challenged, that we need to really reconsider what we are allowing to happen on university campuses, particularly when they're paid for with tax dollars. Yes, they pay tuitions, but a big part of the money that keeps the UC system up and running comes out of your wallet. Do you really think that we should be teaching the next generation to be so scared and terrified of words that no words may be spoken that could be construed as being hurtful? I'm differentiating between, what should we call it, Ku Klux Klan-style hate speech. Yes, I think there are areas where we need to very cautiously demonstrate sensitivity. But if you want to get up and talk about issues of the day and suddenly you happen to be in the bastion of the Democratic Party and some 
God-fearing Republican shows up to town and wants to express an opinion that runs contrarian to the party platform, that suddenly that's not allowable. At what point do we say, well, listen, let's just make this easy. Nobody gets to voice any opinions. We just keep our thoughts to ourselves. And if you mention anything that runs contrarian to somebody else's thoughts or feelings, or heaven help you if you say something contrarian to the ruling party or those that are in charge, off with your head. All of a sudden now, George Orwell's 1984 book doesn't look like much of a novel anymore. It looks more like chapter out of history. Enough said about that. Had to get that off my chest because it's about time somebody said it. Now, speaking of chapters out of history, when we come back after a brief break, we're going to meet our next guest, who ironically has taken a hard look at history and finds some frightening parallels with where we are today and most frighteningly where we might be headed. A look at the paradigm. Jonathan Kahn, next as Lifeline continues. All right, let's get that update on traffic. We'll swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center, and Michael Bennett's got the latest. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The British statesman Edmund Burke, amongst others, oddly, have um, often been quoted with the phrase, those that forget history are doomed or condemned to repeat it. And if we think about those words, there have been plenty of times in both ancient and modern history when that has been proven to be true. Joining me now is best-selling author Jonathan Kahn. Jonathan leads the Hope of the World Ministry, an international outreach of teaching, evangelism, and compassion projects for the needy. He is a sought-after speaker. And his latest book is called The Paradigm, The Ancient Blueprint That Holds the Mystery of Our Times. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time to be with us tonight. Help us understand initially the the premise behind the paradigm. What first led you to start seeing a pattern, connecting the dots, so to speak, between historical events in ancient Israel and what's happening, particularly in the Western world today? Yeah, yeah, there are things that I had... uh sensed um, before this, before it all came to me, but re- particularly after this election, really the, the most of what came to me in the paradigm uh, came to me in January, February. I wrote it in the next few months, and now it's coming out. Um, but basically the paradigm is, I'd say, the most explosive book I've ever written, Craig. It, it's, um, a lot of people know me from The Harbinger, and it's like that, but even more explosive. I'd put it this way. What if there was a master blueprint it actually exists behind virtually everything that's happening a blueprint that goes back from ancient times and not only reveals what would happen but when it would happen the timing in some cases uh, i mean to the year to the month in some cases to the date um, what if it revealed the outcome of elections before they happen and and not just events but the people on the national stage and how long they are allotted to be on the national stage and if we if we could open this up and, and would there be a warning of where we are um, and that is that is what the paradigm is that there is this blueprint and if I if you had known it or I, I had known it or anyone known it you know, a few years ago you could have actually put on your calendar you could have marked what was going to happen so it's kind of mind blowing I know it will sound you know unbelievable but it's real it's true this is not and I want to make this clear for listeners this is not your attempt at being a modern day Nostradamus you're, you're not kind of putting the wet finger in the in the air saying I think no. maybe this will happen you You've actually taken the time to look at 
historical, documented historical events and begin to see some pretty frightening, quite frankly, parallels, this this sense of the cycles of history. And, of course, the one thing that has a lot of folks on the edge of their seat is they look at a book like yours, The Paradigm, which for listeners, by the way, is uh, just newly published and available. Get it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it online through Jonathan's website at theparadigmmystery.com. It's published, by the way, by Frontline Press. But folks can look at this book, and a lot of what they see in Bible prophecy, and quite frankly, some aspects of today's morning news, and begin to do what you did, and that is to begin to connect the dots and say, you know, there's, there, there's not only a pattern developing here, but it's a very troubling one at that. Oh, oh yeah, it's, it's a warning, absolutely, Craig. And it's yeah, and I think that it, you know it's also something that people have a sense of, or many believers have a sense of. But it's not just a sense; it's it's, it's precise, it's exact. Uh, I'll give you first the overall the overall stage. You know, with with ancient Israel, and that's where the paradigm comes from in the Bible. That here's a here's a nation, a civilization that has known God falls away from God, drives them out of the public square, starts calling what's evil good and good evil, starts starts promoting sexual immorality, starts offering up their children as sacrifices, um, driving us out. And first of all, you see this, you know, here America was a nation that also had known God, was founded by the Puritans on the foundation of God, and has also reenacted this whole, this whole scenario, uh, driving God out of the public square, calling what's good, bad, bad, good, changing values, promoting morality and offering up children in abortion. I mean, we, you know, people say, well, how can you compare that? Well, you know, in Israel it was thousands, in America it's been 60 million. So we're reenacting, replaying this thing. Now that's, that's the big picture. But the eerie thing is that it gets specific to even people. And because we have, as in Israel's fall, it starts a period of acceleration. It, it's, it's, we're, we're from the throne itself, from the government itself, it's, the, these values are being championed. It's, uh, there, you have a king who rises up named Ahab in Hebrew, or we know him as Ahab. He rises up and he's part of this culture war and he's promoting all these things. First king to promote child sacrifice and many other things. And he also, he's not alone, he also has a, uh, uh, he's, it's a co-regency, really. He's with his, his wife, the queen, whose name was Isabel. We know her as Jezebel. And so we have this template of Ahab and Jezebel in this, this is just the beginning of paradigm. And, and could there be a modern, modern leaders, and this is not about the people, meaning we have to pray for all people, there's no enemy, but it's a sign. What happened is you have a culture war in America. We've had this period of accelerating uh, moral fall from God. Happened in the 1990s, and of course we had Bill Clinton. Well, he's following the pattern of the prototype of Ahab. He's, Ahab was a, a man who knew about God, but he was compromised. He was weak-willed in many ways, and he's the first leader to endorse many things. Well, Clinton was the first leader also to endorse abortion, to many of the things that we're, we're living right now, the, the, the repercussions. Of, but he wasn't alone. Clinton was the first one to have a co-regency where people said it's a co-presidency. It's with it, with Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton is not about the not about the motives, but Hillary Clinton is following the prototype of Jezebel. And I'll tell you what. First of all, Jezebel was 
the the primary advocate of child sacrifice. Well, Hillary Clinton has been the primary advocate of abortion in America. She's voted the the, the champion of the century by Planned Parenthood. But also, it gets so eerie that if you look at how long was Clinton, Bill Clinton, on the national stage. Well, he came to be, he rose in 1979 as the, the governor of Arkansas was elected, and it lasted till the end of his presidency, 2001. Well, you, t- you, you do the math, you have 22 years on the national stage of Bill Clinton. Well, you go to the Bible and go to the prototype of Ahab, and it says that, and this is, you, people can see it for themselves, King Ahab, he, reigned, he was on the stage of Israel for how long? For 22 years. Bill Clinton conforms to that. And not only that, but you'll find every major leader in this story is going to conform to it. And so, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. And some things will go, I'll, I'll share, you know, we have a chat, well, something that even goes down to the day. What's fascinating about this, Jonathan, is if if you take a step back and look at just the the basic parallels, we we see the relationship between ancient Israel and God. They respected God. They obeyed God's laws. The leadership of that nation had a heart after God. There was respect for uh, order. There was respect for God's order, to be sure. Mm -hmm. Much of those parallels we see in not only the founding of our nation, but the early leaders of this nation. There was a respect for law and order, a respect for God's law. We see the influence of of, uh, the Judeo-Christian ethics throughout everything, from the Federalist Papers to certainly the, the Constitution of the United States. And then what begins to happen? Much like Israel, this slow paradigm shift occurs where suddenly it's less about honoring God and obeying God and more about self and self-aggrandizement and self-fulfillment. God begins to take more and more of a back seat. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what would be the, the modern equivalent today of, um, of Baal, but there's certainly plenty of it out oh. there. Entertainment, media, on and on the list yeah. goes. And then what happens? If, if we look at the end result, well, God never ceases loving Israel. Scripture tells us that Israel is the apple of his eye, and yet what happens? God, who is not only a holy God and a righteous God, but also a God who chastises those who he loves. God chastises Israel, and to this day we find the 12 tribes of Israel scattered across the planet. And you have to wonder, with some of these parallels, with this transition, this paradigm, this this metamorphosis, as you refer to in the book, of, of what's happening in modern America, and from where our roots were, strongly spiritually, and I and I want to I want to put the disclaimer in here. Somebody's to please don't send me email and say, Craig, you're on the air advocating for British Israelism. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the attitude, the mentality of the founders of our nation in terms of love and respect for God and Scripture and the the implementation of the Judeo-Christian ethic in all of American life is equal to what we saw within ancient Israel, then, too, are the parallels of beginning to surrender those values, both in ancient Israel and in America today, and exchange them for something entirely different. And that's where this book takes a frightening turn, Jonathan, because I look at this, and, and as I've gone through the book, I think to myself, yeah, I see that parallel. I see that parallel. I see that parallel. And then I think, are we destined to be judged equally as God has chastised the nation that he loves Israel? 
Yeah, well, you know, I also wrote The Harbinger, which is also the signs of judgment. And, yeah, that is that is a warning, Greg. And absolutely, and you, you mentioned, you, you said something. You said, well, well, what would be the equivalent of Baal worship? Well, Baal worship was involved child sacrifice. That's abortion. Baal worship also involved sexual immorality uh, in the public square. Well, we're wa- the sexualization of culture. We're watching that. Baal worship involved materialism, all those things. So yes, I mean, not that there's, you know, you know there's, there's hope in the, in the paradigm, but there's a real warning. And it's so, I mean, you mentioned also, also something with Baal worship, I won't go into the detail, but there's a chapter in the book called The Goddess. And the fact is that in one part in this, you know, Jezebel brings into the palace worship of these gods, literally. Now, could that ever possibly happen in America? Well, I won't go into the detail, but it actually did happen in the Clinton years, and it actually involved a, a high priest of goddess worship in the White House. But let me, let me share, share something also eerie, that in, this, in the time of, and you, you, spoke, you mentioned Baal, Ahab and Jezebel, who are, who are advocating this, there was a scandal. You know, and, and so it wasn't just a possibility, there was actually scandal in their government, in their administration. Well, it happened also, of course, in the Clinton years, and that happened with a Monica Lewinsky scandal. I mean, it was one of them, and that was the, that he was impeached for. But could that actually have unfolded the same way? Well, in the, in the Bible, the major scandal in the time of, the, of Ahab and Jezebel happens in the 19th year of his time on the national stage. Well, if you take that with Bill Clinton, the 79, 1979, add 19 years, it takes you to 1998. 1998 is the year of the scandal. And if you take it from the time he was sworn in, January 1998, it comes to January, I'm sorry, January 1979, add 19 years, it's January 1998, the month of the scandal. And here's something, I mean, more eerie, that when, when this scandal was exposed, the king, Ahab, he repents, finally, repents. And then at that point, God says, okay, I'm going to give you a, a, a limited amount of time, but then there's going to come calamity. So there, if you look in the Bible, there's three years from the time the king repents to the time calamity comes on the land. Well, did Bill Clinton never repent? Yes, he did. There was actually a, a moment he did. It was at the White House of Prayer meeting. He says, this is my repentance. You take that date, add the three years of the paradigm, where does it take you? It takes you to September 11th, 2001, the day of calamity. And Clinton, actually, this event actually happened in the morning, and so it's the morning, it goes to the morning of 2001. The event in the White House began at 8.30 in the morning, 9-11, that pinpoints the beginning of the hour of 9-11. The event ended at 10.30 in the White House, and so go three years later, at 10.30 would be the end. Well, the last event of 9-11 was the fall of the North Tower. When does it happen? 10.29 to one minute of it. That shows you how exact this is, Craig. I mean, that shows you how God is exact, but that's how real this is, and that's how real where we are is right now. And here's what scares me about this. Not only do the dates line up, and longtime listeners to this program know that, that I generally abhor, particularly in, in the sense of, of from, a, from a prophetic standpoint, trying to engage in, yeah. in date setting. Everybody knows my fondness for people like Harold Camping <laughs> and others that have attempted, uh, you know, Edgar Wiesenot and others. But, but mm-hmm. what's, 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 what's very problematic about all of this, Jonathan, is not only do many of the dates match up, but if you just set the dates aside for a moment and just look at the parallels of this major shift spiritually, theologically, not only amongst the people, but now let's get really to the heart here. Yes, God chastises those who he loves, but judgment begins in the house of the Lord that talks about the church. You spoke a moment ago about Wicca. 
and seeing the way in which compromise has come into many churches, uh, both mainline denominational and, and, and even branches of evangelicalism, where more and more compromise is taking place. There's a greater spirit, and I believe it is a spirit, of so-called ecumenicalism that suddenly says, well, you know, doctrine shouldn't divide. We want to all sing kumbaya. And suddenly we find out that contrary to what skip, Scripture teaches us, that uh, the pathway to heaven's a narrow one, now suddenly it's, it's broad and wide and very very easy for all of us to get in and, and sort of pass the test, so to speak. And suddenly we begin to see not just parallels between what happened in ancient Israel and the hardening of her heart against God, but what's happened in our own nation. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, if, you, if we just continue down this road and do not heed the warning, and I believe there are plenty of warnings that were offered by God to Israel as well, you got to wonder if the end game doesn't become the judgment, the judgment of very God himself upon this nation as he judged Israel. Well, the, you know, and this, this is an intersection with uh, the first work I did, The Harbinger, that actually one of the patterns of judgment or warning is a, an initial strike on the land. And actually it is, it is allowed by God, finally, when the nation's been just defying him, it's a wake-up call, it's a shaking. It's a shaking that our protection comes from God, and you cannot have the blessings of God if you, if you defy everything about God. And so the pattern of, of judgment is first a shaking with the form of an attack, a temporary attack, happened on 9-11, and that's with the harbinger that all the signs that happened in the last days of Israel of warning, of judgment, have happened, are happening at the same time. So this whole thing goes together. I totally agree. This is, we are at a dangerous time. And, you know, these are all as signs. And when I talk about, you know, people, I'm not, the focus isn't the people. We need to pray, again, for the people. But the people are signs as well, because the leaders are signs. And also leaders reflect the nation as well. Absolutely. And one thing to kind of take, because this, this ultimately goes right up to where we are right now, but it's like everything. And just to, just to fill in a quick thing, that what happens at the end of this time is the king, you know, his, his reign ends, but the queen, people think that Jezebel just ended. No, the queen goes on with a political career of her own. And if you look at this, actually, the, the how many years, actually, if you look at, and again, it's not about the person, but it's the sign. Look at Hillary Clinton, how long she has been on the national stage after Bill Clinton alone. It was, she was there for uh, eight years as senator, four years as secretary of state, took a, retired from public life for two years, came back for two years, comes out to 14 years. Well, you look at the paradigm, Jezebel was a, was in a solitary career for 14 years. Mm. And, and then, now there's, a, there's another man who rises up in the, in, the, in the book, he's called The Heir, because he follows in the footsteps of the king, or the, or the Clinton thing, and that is Barack Obama. And he, and actually in the paradigm, Joram, he's King Joram, as we have, he, he actually has the former queen mother with him in the palace, which is exactly what Obama did with Hillary Clinton. But if you look at how long was he on the stage, and you, well, he came in 2004, nobody knew him before 2004, that was that speech at the Democratic convention and so he goes on until the last year's presidency is, presidency is 2016 well that's 12 years he even said it at the, at the speech he gave just a year ago he says it's been 12 years well you look at the paradigm open up the Bible Joram how long was he on the stage of Israel 12 years and in the 12th year of Joram or Obama 12th year something happens which is going to bring what's going to bring it up a new person comes on the stage going to bring it up to right where we are now here is the key question, and I, I know that many listeners who are familiar with your, your previous best-selling books 
uh, are going to run out and get a copy of this one, too, particularly as they learn more about the parallels that you draw between the current stage in the newspaper and the historical stage and the way these two are, are intersecting. The, the big question, I guess, Jonathan, is this. We see the parallels, and they are frightening ones. Um, the big, I guess, takeaway has to be what? That we need to not only learn from history, but then do what? Respond to this? I mean, is in, in your opinion, is there still time? Is there the remnant enough to take heed to this warning and say, you know what, least we end up like so many other cultures that have not perished because of the enemy without, but rather the enemy within. How how do you expect the reader to, to walk away from this? What's the call to action, so to speak, when it comes to learning what we need to do as a nation to correct this path that we're on, least we wind up as Israel? Yeah, well, that's yeah, that that's absolutely the point, and yeah, and and it and the and the paradigm ends with several chapters on it. One is harbingers of things to come. Another one is what do we do, and and where do we go in this? Um, I'll say something very quick, and I'm probably getting right to this, and that is that because it deals with this, and that is that one of the last figures that rises up is called the warrior, and he's a man who's not a politician, and he's he's not a he, he he's 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 not gentle, he's coarse, he's wild, and he comes on the stage, and he ultimately comes head-to-head with a queen, <laughs> with Jezebel, and he ends up becoming the new king. I'm not, I don't have to say a lot about this. There's so much here, but that's basically Trump, and, I, and this relates to where we are. Um, the thing about this is, is that in, that in this paradigm, at the end, with this warrior, and he's not, the guy's not the answer, but he's used to kind of stop this, you know, put a, a, a slowing down of this, of this apostasy. So there's like a window of time in Israel's history. So that's, what, that's where we are. There's a window. God has never finished. And one of the things is that, that you know, one of the things I, you know, people, when they sometimes they read, say, wow, this is scary. But, you know, if you're with God, it's not really scary. In fact, in fact it's saying that he's in control. You know, God is in control of everything. And the thing is, the last part of it is, what do we do? And there's something, the last chapter is called the Elijah Paradigm. And that's where the, the paradigm is actually giving you the keys of what, what is our paradigm in this? What is God's blueprint for us? What are we to do? You know, and that is there. It's based on the it's based on the one who's in this paradigm, who's Elijah. And there, and the point is, as the dark gets darker, the, we don't get more timid. We're to become bolder. We are. The dark gets darker. The lights have to become brighter. If the you know people we sing the song, these are the days of Elijah. These are the days of Elijah. It's we have to become the Elijahs of the day. And so it doesn't matter. You know what happens around us. I mean, we are to make a difference. We're to be the salt of the earth, and as you alluded to, you know, if the church was truly, you know, the salt that it was supposed to be, it could never have gotten this dark. And so we are called to this. There, you know, in many ways, it's the most exciting time, because people say, I want to live in biblical times. Well, you're living in biblical times, you know, but we have to become that person. It's time to become bolder, and I, by the way, because I, I, don't, I don't think I get you out here, I mean, I'm on the other coast, but, but, I, but I heard you at the beginning, your monologue, it was tremendous that we, we have to be bold. Older. You know, we cannot, it's not the time to be timider, more timid. We have to be bolder now, and we have to be more uncompromised. And the Bible says that God's going to empower those who will. He's never finished. So doesn't what, no matter what's happening around us, we have a calling, and this can be our greatest hour if we rise to it. Well, at the end of the day, God has a long history outlined in Scripture of being a God of second chances. He is all about wanting to, to bring about reconciliation between himself and his creation and he's provided multiple modalities
modalities by which we are able to do that through his son, Jesus Christ, through repenting, through confessing. Uh, certainly here the sense that we we need to embrace as the church, and let me be very careful here, to delineate that while, yes, we can point to a lot of the events that are taking place um, in the secular world, at the end of the day, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And we need to really begin to embrace and have a Second Chronicles 7.14 experience that, as Scripture tells us there, God will heal the land if his people who are called by his name, that's you and me, will humble ourselves and pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways. Wow. Then he will hear from heaven and will heal the land. It puts the onus for all of this on we, the church. So where does it start? It starts with you. It starts with me. The book <laughs> reads like a horror novel in the sense that you you begin to dive into it, and Jonathan very carefully takes you back through all of the historical scriptural events and then begins to weave through the pattern, the parallels between what happened then and what we see happening today, and suddenly you say to yourself, it's that aha moment, history is once again repeating itself, but as that happens, God once again repeats his offer that he wants to be reconciled with us, and he wishes that we would simply repent and turn from our wicked ways. There is the juncture in which we stand and find ourselves. A look at the paradigm, the ancient blueprint that holds the mystery of our times. And again, you begin to read it. Sometimes you think you're reading Scripture. Sometimes you think you're reading the front page of the, I don't know, the New York Times from today. Uh, it's a compelling read by New York Times best-selling author Jonathan Kahn. The book, again, is called The Paradigm the ancient blueprint that holds the mystery of our times. You can get the book through the usual suspects, Amazon, bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as online at theparadigmmystery.com. That's theparadigmmystery.com. And our thanks to Jonathan Kahn for spending a few minutes with us to talk about this. It's 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 really a pretty incredible book. 6.08, the clock says. That means you're really late because I am too? Or is it the other way around? We're both late. You're stuck in traffic. I'm trying to figure out what my excuse is. Let's get a look at traffic. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.